Welcome to Franchise Fan Guys. This is our reaction episode to Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. I'm Tom Breifogel, joined this fine morning with Andy Schmidt and Skidmar. Why don't you guys say hi? Hey, I'm Andy Schmidt, and I chose to accept the mission of seeing this movie. <laughs> hey, I'm Skidmar, and my favorite character is Benji. Dun, 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 dun. So this movie has a Rotten Tomato score of 96 and an audience score of 94. So at the time of recording, it's only been out a few days, uh, but it's doing pretty well in the box office. So uh, it seems like people love this movie. Overall, what did you guys think? Did this being a part one make it less effective for you as a whole experience? If not, how did they avoid that? Andy? I did like it. Uh, I really enjoyed myself. Um, I think the only thing that I was a little... Uh, and I did try to sort of avoid most of the stuff. Obviously, I had seen a trailer because I uh, watch movies. Um <clears throat> but I tried to avoid like most of the hype and everything about it. So I didn't, I was trying to go in kind of as cold as possible, which I generally try to do these days. And, um, uh, I was a little bit, I don't know. It, it takes some of the excitement off of it that I had already seen the major stunt p piece at the end. Like, uh, that was sort of my, my main sort of complaint was that I was very well versed in the motorcycle jump off the mountain, which was awesome. But like, I don't know that had already I'd already seen that part. So it was just kind of, it kind of was unfortunate. I thought that, that, you know, you get the big climactic moment was like the only part of that movie I was already familiar with. So that kind of, I didn't love that, uh, just as a moviegoer, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it worked. I thought it worked really well. Like, uh, it was fun. I mean, it's a complicated kind of, kind of silly plot, uh, to a certain degree, um, certainly with how complicated, like the key is that you have to, uh, um, find. And like, I, I sort of tried to like track the two halves of the key in my head. And then eventually I just stopped. Like ultimately it kind of didn't matter where they were. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like you kind of knew they were all going to come together. They were going to come together eventually. So like, I kind of stopped trying to be like, wait, who has what half and that kind of thing. But I thought, Overall, it did everything a Mission Impossible movie does, and it did those things well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I I, I definitely enjoy. It. I saw it with my my son, and uh, we both liked it. And on the car ride home, the movie theater is about thirty five minutes away. So on the car ride home, we we chatted about the movie a bunch, and we chat about some of the other Mission Impossible movies. Which normally, you know, I get a, he's a teenager, so I get out of him. I'm like, you like it? He's like, it's good. <laughs> and that's about all I get. So the fact that we were like talking about it and it was cool too, because we talked about AI a little bit. So like we were talking, to, so it was neat. I thought that the AI thing I thought worked fairly well. So yeah, I was, I was overall pretty, pretty pleased. And I can talk about the, the, it being part one thing later, but let's, let's, what did you guys think overall? I loved it. I thought it was really, really good. Uh, it was, I will think sort of along what you were saying along the lines of what you were saying andy i think the plot itself like felt a little more muddled um than in some of the other installments but i think that the set pieces the performances i think were top notch um i had a blast uh this was it, this was great uh, and watching it, and uh, I know I always do this, but like there were two main 
sort of touch points, like kind of references that I picked up on that resonated for me. One more obvious, one probably less so. First one is Ghost in the Shell. Like that seems to be a lot of uh, similar ideas from Ghost in the Shell in this film with just sort of the rogue AI. Like a lot of stuff is kind of lines up pretty pretty well with that movie uh, slash manga. And the other one is Lord of the Rings. And I know everyone, including you guys, are going to roll your eyes at me saying that. But I do think there's actually a little something, too. There's a thematic similarity, which is the this sort of this weapon that everyone wants to take for themselves and use. But you know that if they do, it means utter destruction. Ethan and his team are the only ones that just want to destroy it. And it's just like Frodo in the Council of the Nine. It's like the enemy doesn't anticipate anyone daring to destroy the ring. Like he he imagines that everyone will want to use it for themselves. And um, I did think that one of the best the best beats in that movie was when um, the the CIA I think they're CIA agents um, Briggs and um, Dagus I think were the characters' names are like talking, I think it's towards the end when they're on the train and Briggs is like, you know, Degas, the younger agent is like, well, <laughs> we need to destroy it. And he's like, but that's not what our mission is. Right. Like, that's not what our job is. And he's like, but no one should have that kind of power. And so like, I thought that was pretty, I thought that was just cool that like these characters that are not like major characters, like have this little aside that I thought was pretty on point. And I was, I was glad it was there. Uh, but but yeah, I mean it, it's it's clearly the one ring. Like I, yeah, I'm, I mean I'm not even rolling when you my eyes at all. Like it's very much okay, so, good. and even the, the the graphic of it. Yeah, is, like the is image the of it of is of either an eye yeah. or a ring or yeah. So it's it's okay. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, maybe I'm not as crazy as I thought. But I that's usually another, do roll my eyes at you. But, I know but you. Know. <laughs> yeah. But I the other thing that's another you bring up another point which is some of the like casting like the fact that Shea Wiggum was in this movie. I didn't know Shea Wiggum was going to be in this movie. He plays the older of the two CIA agents. Everything that guy is in is instantly elevated to a new level. He is so great. <laughs> and, and I love that scene on the train too, where it's just like the, I love like this. It, you get a, just a little tiny taste of, of their relationship with, with the, the younger agent and him as the older agent and the younger agent, like he speaks a bunch of languages. He's trying to like be uh, diplomatic and everything. Like he could like come into the train car and he's trying to like speak in, in French. He's just like, uh, please, ladies and gentlemen, please be calm. And Shea Wiggum just like points his gun to the ceiling, like, bam, bam. And he just, <laughs> the younger guy just rolls his eyes like, oh Jesus. I love that moment. Um, but uh, yeah, I honestly, it was, it was, it was great. I, it was not maybe my favorite installation in the franchise. I think it, this is my immediate reaction, but given the incredibly, how incredibly strong this franchise is, that is no knock against it. Like this is still a phenomenal movie. Uh, what do you, what do you think, Tom? Two years ago when we did the uh, initial batch of these movies, uh, I remember saying, because I totally fell off with part two, and then I didn't see another one of these until we did the podcast. And I remember being shocked that I ended up liking a few of them a lot. And like, so this one, without this podcast, there's no way I would have ever gone and saw this in the movie theater. <laughs> and I still probably wouldn't. I would have watched it at home, even though this is better in the movie theater. Uh, I really enjoyed myself. 
I agree. I don't think it was the best one, but at this point, I don't know. For, to pull it off, to pull off a face mask reveal in one of these movies, and, and they pulled off almost pretty much every one. I was like, oh, wow. Like, yeah. I didn't see them coming. <laughs> like, to be able to do that, that has to be so hard and, yeah. and so meticulous. And uh, there, there, was a, yeah, no. there was a really interesting interview with Christopher McQuarrie. Um, or maybe it was Tom Cruise, or maybe it was the two of them. I can't remember, but they were talking about the face the, the the fake face things and what they were saying was i think it was during ghost protocol which macquarie worked on a little like he he helped doctor the script and i don't even i'm not even sure he's credited but he did work on that one which is the fourth one if you're listening um but they talked about how like it took them a while to figure out that you can only do like two of those mm-hmm. in a movie um that there is a limit and like if you if i think we may have talked about this even back when we did the podcast but like the the second one there's like 30 of them like yeah. everybody's peeling I think the face there's off five. all there's the time it yeah. it is it is yeah. the record it is the high water mark for face reveals is <laughs> is mission impossible too yeah. and it yeah for sure yeah. yeah anyway sorry to interrupt but i but i i'm i'm agreeing with you that was really cool and then this long of a movie and only seeing it once and being in a theater and not being able to take notes i'm sure there were a lot of things i'm forgetting to talk about but i remember this one desert scene there's a fight scene. There's no music. It's just the wind is really loud. I'd never seen something like hmm. that in the movie. Do, do either of you remember that? I mean, yeah. I mean, I remember that that scene, and I remember I remember the wind. Like I, I saw this in in um, what a Cinemark's XD format, which is a large screen format with with really loud surround sound, um, and it was it was pretty deafening. Like I mean, it kind of felt like you were in the wind. Uh, like you were in a hurricane there. So yeah, I definitely noticed that. I thought that was cool. I thought that was a good scene. One of the things that, that I think is really spectacular about the way that they put these together is that all of the, ac- like they have several action-y sequences, right? In each one of these things, but they all feel very different. Like this one has a firefight in the desert. It's got an elaborate train sequence. Even part of the train sequence is the motorcycle jump. Like every the the action scene in the chase car chase scene in Rome, which I thought was long but like super fun. I mean, the fact that this movie is like two and a half hours long, maybe longer even, and like both my son and I were like, like felt like we were in there for like an hour and forty five minutes. Like it did not feel long. Like it yeah. just keeps plugging away, but not it like oppressively. Like it just it moves quickly and it and it feels light at times. Which is something that these movies, I think, do well with because they could very easily get into like overly serious all the time. Everybody's going to die. And they manage to to lighten it often enough. Like one of my favorite bits is probably, well, I don't know, it's the most unrealistic thing in the movie. But when that car in that Rome car chase like rolls down the stairs, like just <laughs> full on rolling down the stairs. And, they, and, it, and it lands and he and Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell have switched seats. <laughs> And they just kind of look at each other like, what the? <laughs> I like, love that whole so sequence. Dumb. I love it it's so much. It's so dumb, but it was, but it was so fun, too. And, and part of it is the way that, that the two of them just kind of played it. Like, yep, that happened. Like, and then they just roll with it. Like, it just, it has a way of, you know, I mean, it's about world domination or world destruction. And yet it has a way of also being light and playful, which I think is a really, really difficult balance to strike. And, and the last several have managed to do that. I really think that, that, that the fourth one really kind of nailed that, the one that Brad Bird directed. 
mm-hmm. kind of nailed that feeling of of keeping it fun um and then and then they've managed to maintain that ever since and i i think that's a huge part of why these are as successful as they are and ours you know obviously they are why they're as fun as they are but yeah there were there were all these like little things where i'm like well that's dumb but i really enjoyed it and i'm i'm totally okay with them doing that <laughs> um yeah. yeah, keeping it I fun without that, diminishing the stakes. Because the characters yeah. are still taking the situation seriously. The characters yeah, aren't... Like, and, they don't actually say, like, well, that happened. They don't actually right. do that. <laughs> it's like they're right. still taking this, like, really seriously. And it, But, yeah, it is, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fine line to walk, and they, they do it as well as anybody. Yeah, and that little bit happens in a scene where Paris, played by Pom... Uh, Clementif, I don't Clementif, uh, who's like super intense in this movie. Like, oh, yeah. what a far cry from Mantis. Yeah, <laughs> she's Guardians great. She's so she's good great in, this. in this. And uh, and like, and she's like, she is definitely like, I definitely think she's trying to like not just kill them, but like murder them and like murder them dead, right? Oh and, yeah. Like, so she's got this like intensity in that scene in that big Humvee or whatever it is that she's like crushing everything in, and yet yeah. that still they get that little light thing in and then immediately they switch back to her and you're like oh shoot yeah <laughs> yeah she's gonna kill it's them great. it's great but also the joy yeah. on her face at the destruction she's causing is so fun too <laughs> it's just like yeah it's so great i i just i just love her in this she very she felt like a little uh, daryl hannah in a uh, blade runner she felt like just yeah. especially yeah, seeing like where she's wearing like the clown makeup and the club and everything that felt like a nod and you know her name's Paris, Pris, take the A out. Also, Paris, I assume, is a reference to Leonard Nimoy's character in the original series. You uh, would, you so would think. Uh, you would think. And Briggs, Shay Wiggum's character that you were talking about, is a reference to the original series as well. Oh, who's Briggs? He was the original leader in the first season oh, of right. the IMF team. Okay, yeah, before that Peter was Briggs. Graves. And, then, and right. then Peter Graves comes in in the second season. That's yeah. right. Uh, I've got a little... I think there's a decent chance that that's actually going to be a thing in part two, because there is a bit with, with Briggs and again, the younger agent played by Greg Tarzan Davis, which is an awesome name. Hmm. Um, I think it's an exchange between the two of them where I think it's him like, like Davis played by Davis asks like do you know him like do you know ethan hunt he's like not personally and then he's like but it is personal isn't it or something like that yeah i think it would not surprise me if in part two you know he's maybe that agent's son or somehow is related to the original character and they create some sort of backstory where he's involved because he left the tv show after season one and like they never reference him in the original TV show after that. Yeah. He's just gone. There's no reference to kind of or anything like that. Peter yeah. Graves and, became and, such an iconic part of that show that yeah, he just kind of got lost. Yeah, but even like within like within the, the context of the show, like nobody ever says like, oh yeah, Briggs retired or he got shifted to a new team. And that happened multiple times um throughout the TV show when Cass would leave. Like Martin Landau and his wife left after season three, I think. Mm. And like, there's no reference to them after that. They just they just didn't show up for the next mission, you know. Like, like, like nobody <laughs> says anything. And well, it's also it wasn't a very the, serialized show, though. Like, it was very episodic, so it it wasn't there wasn't as much of like a through line 
that it would right. make as much sense to refer back to somebody else. Well, and they do that. They do that in these movies too. When when cast members don't come back, like there's been no reference of Jeremy Renner, who was in two of them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, there's been you know no reference to really anybody. I think there's maybe one character that they talk about, like that they that they left or something like that. But it's it's yeah, it's rare for sure. Which reminds me, like I love. Henry Zerny in roles like this. Like yeah. the fact that Kittredge from the first one came back, like he has two roles that I absolutely love. And they both were, were in the like kind of early to mid nineties. One was, I love his Kittredge in mission impossible. I, like that scene in the first one in the, in the aquarium restaurant. It's so good. Uh, he, where he, yeah, I he, didn't realize that was the same person until this morning. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. 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 You've so, never like, I love seen that. me very upset. Yeah, he's so yeah, great. Yeah. It's so great to have him. Love right. that love that he's in it and I love him in Clear and Present Danger. Yeah. Um wh where he plays a uh, Ritter. Mm. Uh where he tries where he tries to tell Harrison Ford that the world is is gray. Uh it's not black and white, the world is gray and he and Harrison Ford turns around and says not black and white, right and wrong. And it's just <laughs> <Yes>. like <laughs> like I love it. Like it's so great. He's so good at playing that that character that you kind of love to hate and it's just swarmy and swarmy 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 <laughs> yeah and uh and uh yeah so i like i thought having him back was was pretty awesome and i had thought uh i just misremembered it but i had thought at the end of the first one they said that he like got transferred to alaska and like like he was kind of like his career was done and um and i went back and rewatched part of the first one after seeing this one. And I realized that, that he says that about, uh, about the guy that was like in the, um, that was in the room that Tom Cruise like lowers himself into to access the knock list. Like the oh, guy that, yeah. that found, found out he's, they're like, well, what do we do with him? Like That's he's a right. witness. He's like, I, right. I want him and all, everything he owns <laughs> on the <plane> to Alaska <laughs> by the end of the day. And for some reason I had gotten that confused and thought that that was, that was him. But, um, but yeah, it was interesting. I read an interview with him where I guess Christopher McQuarrie met with him and said, like, what do you think Kittredge has been up to for the last 20 years? And so like he, like Zerny, like kind of came up with this story of like, after he got kind of schooled and shown up by Ethan Hunt, he left the agency and he went around to all the other agencies and learned as much as he could because he was never going to be in that position again. And then comes back to the IMF, you know, having made more contacts and like all this sort of stuff. So he comes back in a much more sort of like confident, powerful sort of presence. And I thought that was interesting. I don't think they're going to get into that in the movie, but I thought it was cool character work that like they had those conversations. And, and, and Zerny said that he went and kind of told uh, Marquand that and or Macquarie that and Macquarie started like adding to it and you know, oh what about this and what about this and they kind of like they kind of worked this whole thing out together which I think is really cool because he's cool. not a huge you know like part of this movie but he's but you know getting those things those details right and that's one of the things too like going back to like Shea Wiggum and and Greg Davis like they're real characters and in most action movies they're not they're just action figures yeah but they're act, they you know they don't have a ton of screen time but they but they pull them off um yeah i thought the the i thought the performances were were great i th i'm not the biggest fan of vanessa kirby's white widow um 
I, like, I feel like I'm supposed to be like, sort of like, she's supposed to be a little bit more intimidating or mysterious than I think she comes off. But, um, I don't know if that's her performance. Like I shouldn't put that all on her. It may just be kind of the way the character is written. Um, and I thought, is it SI? Is that right? SI Morales? I'm not sure how you say Isai Morales. I thought he was. I thought he was good, but then I learned that Nicholas Holt was supposed to be that character. Oh wow, that would have been I, awesome. And I and I love Nicholas Holt. Yeah. And I bet he would have been scary as hell. That's <laughs> that's a villain. That said, I thought Isai was Morales was quite good. I thought he pulled it off really well. And I thought that and we haven't talked about her at all, but I thought Haley Atwell's Grace was really fun. So I thought she was a great new addition, also. So yeah, just kind of keep. Keeps popping. These movies just keep popping. Do you think there's anything else that enhanced the franchise as a whole? Yeah. The, the, the world seems to keep expanding. I feel like the, the previous two movies, I felt like what one of the things that Fallout did from a franchise perspective was it tied up loose ends um, and, and fixed some of the mistakes that had been made in the franchise. And as much as I like Michelle Monaghan, marrying Ethan Hunt off, not a great call, right? Nope. And I, and and um, and you know, Fallout, you dealt with that, I thought, in a really, really good way, where it was still satisfying. It sort of honored the fact that they were married. Um, she's got that great speech at the end of Fallout, where she's like, "I love my life, and I wouldn't have this life if I hadn't met you." And and you know, like this is this is I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, and then she says, "And like you're you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Like this is the way it's supposed to work." So like I thought that was all really great. I felt like Fallout sort of to me was like this is the ultimate Mission Impossible movie. Like it gets everything right that it's supposed to get right. It does everything a Mission Impossible movie is supposed to supposed to do, and it resets the whole thing to where you can you you don't you don't have anything kind of hanging over your head moving moving forward. And then this one, I don't think made any new mistakes and was able to expand out the cast a little bit more with grace and with the new villain and bringing Kittredge back in a cool way. Like I, it feels as of this movie, I feel like it is now its own sort of world. Like that's one thing I, I felt like with this, that it, it now is like a working totally working functioning franchise at this point. Yeah. I, I think one of the kind of in retrospect things that seems like a mistake now earlier that basically started in Mission Impossible 3 was thinking back to their the Mission Impossible organization was huge. Like they had gigantic they had a gigantic kind of facility. There were like hundreds of people seeming like working there. And that seems completely wrong. Yeah, uh, it's not anything that, that occurred to me at the time, but like looking back, it's just like, no, it really should be just a tiny handful of people. So that uh, that's a nice I'm glad yeah, that like, it, you know, they've corrected that. It is interesting because what that organization is seems to change movie to movie. It does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, and and in this one is sort of the 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 coolest and also dumbest version of it. Where like they have that whole conversation, all the like the heads of the agencies have that conversation, and in whatever they call that group, the the <laughs> they have a name for that group. But anyway, all the heads of the agencies are like, wait, so like, like the NSC, basically, when when you can't handle something, like when your agents can't handle something, you like 
you like ask a dude to like <laughs> and then like hope for the best and then he's like yep pretty much <laughs> that's, that's that what works. we do and like and like that is so dumb uh and yet so great at the same time and um i mean it is kind of funny like how many of these are like at the start of the movie like everything goes wrong and then they're disavowed and they're completely on their own and even their own government is hunting them like that's happened multiple times now um and i like it it feels like that's just now like they just sort of incorporated that into the, like yeah he's he's um you know he does he does his thing and we trust him and like that's what this relationship is now and i think that's i think that's interesting um it does make you wonder where they would get any new agents, but, um, but yeah. And there's a new secretary, like almost every movie too. Yeah. Like, um, which I think is kind of fun. It or is funny. a fun moment when it's just like, we got to call the IMF. It's just like the international monetary fund. <laughs> 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 every time I read that in the New York times, I think of the impossible. Mission yeah, I know they're on it. They're going to save the financial markets. Fantastic. Dun, dun, dun. I just love these movies. And I, I'm just I'm just so continue to be blown away and amazed at how this is a franchise that for the most part just gets better and better and better as it goes. I, I, I just I honestly I can't think of anything else quite like it. It's 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 amazing. I can't think of one that's has gone on this long continually. It, it, this isn't like a reboot. It's not like they had 15 years. Yeah. Off. And it's not like James it, Bond where, you know, they're recasting the main character when they age out. Yeah. yeah. Someone's saying it was like, uh, the Tom Cruise is the same age now as Roger Moore was in his last Bond film. And people, yeah, he's also were older turned, than John Voight was in the first one. That's insane as well. That's crazy. <laughs> Yeah. So this film kills off two women. One of them's unnamed, and one was a major character. Did the deaths work for both of you narratively, or did they detract? And do you think there's bad optics on that skid? Uh, bad optics. No, that that didn't occur to me. It seems democratic to allow that to happen. Uh, I was a little bit bummed out that Ilsa Faust, Rebecca Ferguson's death didn't carry more, didn't seem to carry a little more weight with Ethan. It seems like she'd kind of been in in the film and kind of been replaced by Grace, by Hilly Atwell's character. So I was a little disappointed in that. I, I wanted uh, a little bit more there because, man, I think she's great. Uh, by the way, it was great to, in the opening scene there. It was great to see her back in the desert, uh, back on Arrakis. Um, <laughs> uh but yeah i mean i i think uh <laughs> and you know i think palm clementif like it's funny because like you think she dies but she doesn't die uh so there's that too um but yeah i guess that would be my only reaction is is rebecca ferguson's death was like i i, I wanted it to it seemed feel like it hit home a little harder for the other characters in the movie. Yeah. I, um, yeah, it didn't occur to me during the movie. It occurred to me later that like, well, we're, we're killing off a lot of female characters here. Um, while the, while the guys seem to get a, get out of jail free card. Um, that did occur to me, but you know, I haven't seen anything, 
you know, major about that online. I've seen one or two people kind of mention it and that's kind of it. Um, it's amazing what, what audiences forgive if they have fun. Um, <clears throat> but I, I agree with you. And that was the one that was, I mean, I mentioned that I had, you know, was aware of the big stunt, but that was the one thing that got spoiled for me was that she didn't make it out of that movie alive, which was oh. annoying. Oh, I didn't I'm know. not sure I how that, that, yeah, I'm not sure how that, I don't like, I felt like, well, maybe I was just a little bit more guarded cause I was just kind of waiting for it to happen. Um, but now hearing you say that, like, yeah, it, it didn't feel like it packed a lot of punch. Like it almost packs more punch for grace. Um, cause that's sort of the turning point for her character. Mm. Um, and it, and it leads to the scene that in pretty much all of Tom Cruise's recent movies, they all have this scene where they define his character as heroic in contrast to everyone else around him. Like Top Gun Maverick, I think I mentioned this when we talked about Top Gun Maverick, there's the scene where he realizes that even the people that are asking him to train those pilots don't expect these kids to come back. And then from that moment on, he is essentially on a rescue mission, right? Like he's just trying to save the lives of these kids more than anything else, right? And he's, yeah. not, he's not willing to accept that these kids will die. Same thing here where, you know, they say that like this mission's too important and he's not willing to accept that. And there's, and I thought the, the, that's nice for him to like to say that, but I actually thought the scene after Ilsa dies where he doesn't promise that he can save grace. He's like, I can't promise mm. you that. What I can promise you is that your life will mean more to me than my own. And then she says like, you don't even know me. And then he says, what difference does that make? Like, and to me, that's like the, like, that's the point where you're like, it's just so like cemented then that he is the hero because he's the one. And they, they actually say this, I think in fallout, I think it's um, Angela Bassett's character Sloan that says, he's the one person that cares just as much about the individual as he does for the millions of people at stake. Mm. And that that's great because that means she doesn't have to. Yeah. Um, and it's such like, it's such a cool way to define him. And by extension, IMF as being sort of like super heroic mm -hmm. in, in that sense of how clear their heroism is and how they're not willing to compromise. Like no one is going to die if they can help it, which I just think is really, really smart and really cool. And they keep finding new ways to essentially establish that in each movie. And uh, it's, it's pretty great. But yeah, I did feel like I didn't feel her death as much as I felt like I should. Cause I think Ilsa Faust is a great character. Um, but um but yeah, what what it did in sort of Grace's storyline for the movie, I thought was actually kind of was nice. I just wish they'd gotten there a different way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there was a, there was a lot of stuff like Angela Bassett was supposed to return in this one, but had to drop out because of uh, scheduling conflicts, which is also why Nicholas Holt wound up dropping out. There's a picture of her, and I wonder, is there? Yeah, in the uh, National Security Council meeting in the beginning, there's like a photo of her sitting on one of the desks. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I think that, um, and I, I wondered too if if maybe killing Ilsa off was due to a scheduling conflict with Dead Reckoning Part 2, but I don't know. That's She's just, super busy that's too. A... She's in Silo. She's got the yeah, Dune 2 good. coming I like up. Silo I like Silo a lot too. Silo's a very good show. Well, 
At this point, let's do our rankings of all of these films and then an overall ranking. And I think I'm going to go first, speaking as someone who... I've seen the first movie unlimited times. I had that one on VHS as a kid. Besides that one, I've seen each movie one time. (laughs) I would rank them from what I remember, because also I watched all the other ones in like a four-day period. So there is some, some blur in my brain. But I would go six, three... Five, seven, and four tied. One, two. That would be my order. Wow. Okay. That's is that is that a respectable order or is that yeah, that's nonsense? Fine. No, that's fine. <laughs> I I mean so. I think as long as two is at the bottom, I think we're fine. Yeah, <laughs> that's all. That's the only important <laughs> ranking that counts. And then I guess overall, an overall rating just for this movie. Mm-hmm. I I guess. Seven. Oh, seven. Wow. Okay. Uh, for me, I would put. I think Fallout would still would probably be number one. Uh, Ghost Protocol two. This one three. Rogue Nation four. Well, three and four just could could flip flop. Um, then Mission Impossible. Th- then Mission Impossible one. Then three. Then two. Yeah, mine's mine's pretty similar. I would still put Fallout at the top. I think that's a near perfect action movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd either go Rogue Nation or this one. I'd put them on the same footing. Overall rating on this one, I'd put it like a, a nine. As as action movies go, like I'd put Fallout at a ten. Yeah, I'm, I really don't think there's a flaw there. Um, but like Rogue Nation and, and this one, I'd put it at like a nine. And then I'd put Ghost Protocol at an eight. I'd put the original at like a seven, seven and a half, right? And then I'd put three at a seven. It's fine. And then two, I would put much lower. <laughs> um, one of the things that I, th- I thought was really interesting, I read a bunch of like critics' reviews of of several of these. And one of the things that in later reviews of like, in like the last two or in nobody mentioned it, that I remember in reviewing fallout, like pretty much all the reviewers were like, Fallout's amazing. But in rogue nation and ghost protocol and reviews for this one, a whole bunch of critical reviewers were like, well, none of these movies has topped the original. that's weird and i'm like i don't know when the last time you saw the first one was (laughs) but that's a flawed it's a flawed movie like it's fun and it's it's good but it's it's flawed and and, you know and a lot of them were like there hasn't been anything as memorable as like when he drops down you know in the the scene we were talking about earlier where he drops down to steal the knock list like there's been nothing as memorable as that image that image has defined the series and that image kind of did define the series because it's in the first one but i'm like i'm sitting there and i'm like really none of these have had an image (laughs) that like stuck in your brain because like i'm sitting here and i'm like there's at least 10 more i can think of that i think are just like super cool and i associate with with mission impossible you know like and so i was just sort of like reading that and i kept being like i don't know if you guys remember that one as as well (laughs) Can, well, it's funny, it's like, a fine. lot of the reviews of the first movie were just like, this doesn't, doesn't hold a candle to the original series, you know? It's just, I think just a lot of people right. just are inclined to think that way about stuff. 
Well, and yeah, and, and a lot of people were so angry that were fans of the original series, About which I was not. Phelps. So like, yeah, I was a big fan, yeah, but didn't, it didn't bother me that that happened, that Phelps turned out to be the traitor. It did, that didn't yeah. bother me at all. Well, I think that's it for this episode of Franchise Fan Guys. If you're a Patreon subscriber, stick around where we're going to talk about our expectations for part two. Oh, and a little bonus. We'll talk about, I don't think we've talked about this before. We'll talk about, I'll talk about the hidden Star Wars reference in the Mission Impossible franchise. Oh, okay. I'd like to hear about that. <laughs> and if you'd like to hear about that, you should become a Patreon subscriber. Hell yeah. Please write a review and give a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Intro music by Tom Breifogel and John Harvey. To connect, visit FranchiseFanGuys.com, at FranchiseFanGuys on Instagram, and at GuysFranchise on Twitter. Franchise Fan Guys.